I'm Beth Bennett, and this is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, January 8th, 2019. Coming up, Fred Provenza, author of Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom, talks about his research into the innate mechanisms we share with animals that instruct us in finding and selecting foods. We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. Photosynthesis is a complicated and amazing process. Without it, plants couldn't convert sunlight into sugar, and most life as we know it would not exist. It occurs in two steps. The first step involves using sunlight to charge a microscopic battery in certain plant cells. The second step doesn't require sunlight, but uses the battery charged in the first step to add carbon from CO2 to build sugar molecules. The enzyme that does this, called Rubisco for short, is certainly the most abundant protein on the planet. It also has one major drawback. When oxygen levels are high in the plant, that gas competes with CO2 for access to the enzyme. This competition limits sugar production. Remember that the oxygen that is vital to us is produced by plants as a waste product of photosynthesis. If plants are blocked from expelling the oxygen, say when it's hot and dry outside their leaves, it can build up. Then sugar production slows down. Some tropical plants have evolved a workaround, but many crop plants are stuck with the ancient enzyme process. The result is a 20 to 50% loss in yield. A team of scientists from the University of Dusseldorf in Germany have done nature one better. They recently engineered the gene for Rubisco to fix the problem. They did their work in tobacco plants, which are easy to grow in the lab, but they anticipate the method can be extended to crop plants. This is good news in a world with a growing population dependent on a few crop plants for food. This work was published last week in the journal Science. Space explorers had two celebrations this recent New Year's Eve. In addition to celebrating the change of the calendar, they also watched and celebrated the New Horizons mission as it, <clears throat> excuse me, as it performed a flyby of the most distant object ever encountered by a spacecraft. At 33 minutes past the dropping of the ball in Times Square, New Horizons flew past the Kuiper Belt object 2014 MU69, nicknamed Ultima Thule. The event was even celebrated with some rock and roll with an appearance by Brian May, guitarist in the group Queen, premiering his new song about the mission. Scientists describe this as one of the most unique space encounters in history, not only because of the distance at 4 billion miles from the sun, but also because it was the first flyby of an object where we know almost nothing about the object beforehand. As it turns out, images beamed to Earth on January 2nd showed that Ultima Thule was what scientists call a contact binary, which means two asteroid-like objects that had been orbiting each other at one time in the past perhaps three to four billion years ago, slowly spiraled in to eventually touch and fuse together into an object that looks somewhat like a snowman. A huge snowman with a head that is 14 kilometers across and a body that is 19 kilometers across. The Kuiper Belt contains millions of these leftover icy and rocky asteroid-like objects from the formation of the solar system four and a half billion years ago. 
and researchers say Ultima Thule is the most primordial and best example ever visited of the basic building blocks that form planets. To hear more about the New Horizons mission, listen to our recent interviews on this show from May 15th and 22nd with the principal investigator of the mission, Alan Stern, and our December 25th, where we talked with one of the mission scientists, Kathy Olkin, about this flyby. And on the science calendar tonight, if you want to hear more about the New Horizons mission and other things in the sky, you can go to Astronomy on Tap, where you can eat and drink and hear local scientists talk about their work and play trivia. Tonight's event features three talks. One will be about New Horizons and the flyby of Ultima Thule, and the other two topics are about cosmic explosions and chasing eclipses. There will even be a raffle of some astronomy items. That's tonight, January 8th, from 7 to 9 at Barfly, part of the Alamo Drafthouse Cinema in Denver at 4255 West Colfax Avenue. Based on his work with domestic herbivores, Fred Bravenza developed the idea of the wisdom body. In his recent book, Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom, he describes how animals, as well as humans, can determine the nutrients they need and identify them through the brain's ability to sense taste. Welcome to the show, Fred, and congratulations on your upcoming book, which is called Nourishment. And it's, to me, about way more than just what animals eat. And there's so much that integrates the wisdom of the natural world from plants through animals and ourselves. So we have a lot to talk about. So maybe you could talk about your main focus in writing the book. Well, Beth, let me start by saying it's just wonderful to be here with you. And let me give you a little bit of background on, on how I view the book. To me, nourishment is really about the mysteries and wonders of a visit to planet Earth. Um, I wrote the book after I retired while my wife and I were living in the peace and tranquility of the backwoods of Colorado, actually. We were 12 miles in on graveled road as far back as we could get. And in a word, it was really a meditation. We were living at 9,500 feet elevation in the transition zone between the conifers and aspens and uh, the beautiful parklands of South Park. Uh, we were surrounded by 14,000-foot peaks uh, to the south, the Sangre de Cristo Range, to the east, the Sawatch Range, to the north, the Mosquito Range, and to the east, the Terrials. And we were really immersed in the beauty of nature from the exquisite arrays of different plants that were growing there to the insects, birds, small and large mammals. Um, who make their home there in the backwoods, at least seasonally, if not year-round. So for me, it was really a wonderful time and setting to re reflect on the mysteries of a universe in the process of consuming itself, literally from galaxies and stars in the cosmos to herbivores, omnivores, and carnivores above and below ground here on, on Earth. Um, 
So I thought a lot about the fact that we live in a universe with some 200 to 300 million galaxies, each with billions of stars. And I was watching a Nova special. It's titled <clears throat> about a black hole apocalypse, talking about at the center of each of these galaxies is a black hole in the process, literally, of consuming the galaxy. Uh, thinking about, well, we're living on a planet where life lives by consuming itself above and below ground. So I use comparative food selection, nutrition, and health of plants and animals, from insects to humans, as a way then to reflect on the mysteries and wonders of, of existence. That's really, to me, uh, it's, I simply use that as a workhorse to explore mysteries and wonders of, of the natural world. And they are incredibly mysterious. And I think up until just recently, many people didn't really buy into this idea of wisdom. And I just want to read a couple sentences from one chapter that really struck me as epitomizing that. You say at one point, and I quote, we experience life through gradations in physical and emotional sensations. Our bodies translate biochemical and physiological interactions among cells and primary and secondary compounds into sensations through molecules of emotion. And I think that that really gets at the wisdom of the body, that our brains, as you say so beautifully the, in those molecules of emotion, really determine what we want to eat. And we might have gotten a little bit out of touch with that. We can come back to that. But uh, talk a little bit about, if you will, about how animals, because that was your primary study for so many years, how animals figure that stuff out, what to eat. Yes, well, there's really, um, I, I think about it anymore, three legs to the stool of this wisdom of the body and these interrelationships between, um, as you were saying, the, the cells and the palate and our liking for food. The one, that, uh, the one leg of the stool that we spent many, many years studying is what I refer to in the book as flavor feedback relationships. And it's this feedback that really was mind-boggling to, to, to me and to the people in our group when we first embarked on, on understanding that our liking for foods is, is certainly mediated by flavor, but it's this feedback that's changing liking for food. And that was a mind twister for me. I don't know if we can convey that, uh, and I know we don't have a lot of time to go into examples, but when we started um, being hit over the head with that through, through things that we were observing animals do, it was just mind-boggling to realize that it's feedback from cells and organ systems, including the microbiome, um, that's altering liking for flavor of food as a function of, of need. Um, it's just, well, our experience as a human is of, you know, when I ask people, why do you like a food? Because it tastes good. Why don't you like a food? Because it tastes bad. And then to understand that it's this feedback that's really so critical in alter, uh, altering our liking for the flavor of food. And, and this all occurs at a non-cognitive level. We don't sit around and think about, hmm, I'm going to change my liking for broccoli or whatever it is. It's all happening at a non-cognitive level, just as um, I often ask people, you know, well, how many of you are thinking about which enzymes to release to digest the food you just ate? We don't do that. That happens automatically. 
And it's the same thing with feedback as we showed over the years. So that's one leg to the stool. The second leg that's so important from an animal standpoint is the biodiversity of landscapes, the plant diversity on landscapes. There's just no way to overstate how important that is. Uh, Landscapes with a diversity of different plant species are literally nutrition centers and pharmacies with these vast, vast arrays of the primary and secondary compounds that are just fundamental to health. And uh, the third leg that ties in so much with the first two is the social-cultural part of things, learning what and what not to eat, where and where not to go, what's a predator, what's not a predator. You know, I think it's fair to say that when we started our research 45 years ago or, or however long it is now, there was a sense, certainly with wild animals, that they were wise. They, they wouldn't be on the landscapes if they weren't. Um, domestic animals, there was the sense that they had really lost nutritional wisdom over the last 10,000 years of domestication, and pretty much the same as in the literature on human beings, I think, is a general sense. But I think as much as anything that our work has done is to bring the focus that all this stuff is being learned, and it's being learned in wildlife species as well. If you step back and think, once a species becomes a species, paleontologists tell us the average lifetime of a species is some 10 million years. Just think of the tremendous, tremendous amount of changes that occur within a lifetime of a species over 10 million years. And yet, you know, the genome really isn't changing. You have this very, very stable genome, not that it can't change to a bit, but it's really pretty stable. What's happening is that animals are learning, um, and that learning entails epigenetic changes, genes being turned on and turned off. And we showed over the years that changes how organ systems are built, you know, liver, kidneys, gut, central nervous system, how they function. Um, all that's the plasticity. And so this role that learning and epigenetics plays, I think, becomes just fundamentally important to understanding how any kind of creature uh, exists, uh, co-evolves, I, I think, co-creates in these environments that are ever-changing. And it makes perfect sense to me from an evolutionary perspective that all of these animals and ourselves included in that description would develop this kind of learning ability and that those feedback mechanisms between the cells and the gut and then the brain, the parts of the brain that tell us what to do and what we learn. Because if we don't have those mechanisms, we don't survive. I mean, eating is just such a profoundly important aspect of our survival. If you don't eat the right stuff, you're not going to live to pass on your genes. So there's, I think that, you know, from the get-go, from 4 billion years ago, our cells have been modified in, in that direction. Absolutely the case. Absolutely the case. And that, that was really, um, that was the revelation as we went along in, in the research that we were doing and, and looking at all three facets of those, um, uh, of those legs to the stool, the flavor feedback, the uh, availability of different plant species, and then the social cultural part of things, and and all of them were equally fascinating. Actually, I um, we spent so much time on the social cultural part, and 
you know, to realize that this learning begins to, in utero, actually in the womb. Genes are being turned on and off. The fetal taste system's fully functional during the last trimester of gestation. So the diet that mother's eating is um, getting into the amniotic fluid in the form of different flavors of those foods for the young. Young offspring is already beginning to learn what's food and what's not food. Um, after birth, mother's milk cues, flavor cues in mother's milk are, are a further guide to, to what mother is eating. And then as the young creatures begin to forage, what, learning from mother what she's eating, what she's avoiding, all those. And it was just amazing to, to do that research, to explore, and to to look at how profound those effects can be. We, we got involved in studies of animals uh, during harsh periods of the winter, of the year, during the winter time when they have to eat really poor quality forages. And we were showing that um, when a, an offspring is, is exposed in utero to those forages, their ability, their preference for those foods and their ability to utilize those foods is enhanced simply as a result of those experiences. Same thing in, as young, uh, when they're eating early in life. It's just amazing. And to see how powerful those long-term kind of impacts can be many, many years down the road. Yeah, you did talk on a number of occasions about the role of learning um in the, the early um, developmental period of these herbivores, that they would learn from their mothers what to eat and what not to eat. And even within the same species, if they're in different habitats, they would learn to eat different foods. And then those learning experiences could be overcome by moving them to different environments, but they always maintain um, kind of a fondness, I guess, for the foods they were exposed to early on in life, which kind of is a lesson for us humans in terms of what we expose our children to. And, and as you said, even in utero, there's a profound learning of what tastes good and what doesn't taste good. Right. And so let's pick up on the human part just for a minute here. If you think of those three legs to the stool, I argue in nourishment that the flavor feedback is still fundamentally a part of how, how uh, we select foods and our liking for foods. Um, that, I don't think, has changed a bit. What's changed, though, in a major way is the availability of alternatives, and we're now confronted as a species with a lot of alternatives that, that we didn't evolve with, um, the highly processed diets that really can hijack the system. And then from a cultural standpoint, we no longer have the kind of of guidance from culture that occurred back in the day that would select us to, to utilize wholesome foods. In fact, you know, if you have um, a mother that's eating a highly refined, highly processed diet and uh, who's overweight or obese when she's pregnant, the likelihood of her offspring um, eating that same diet, being born, even born with metabolic syndrome, set up for metabolic syndrome, uh, and on the fast track to to uh, obesity, diabetes, diet-related diseases, when you break those links and get into the kind of cycles we're in now, that's, you know, culture still working. Social culture, availability of alternatives and feedback are all still working, but they really set us down a path that's that's not healthy. 
Exactly. And you talk a lot about, and I did want to define these terms for listeners that might not be familiar with primary and secondary nutrients, that primary are the basic nutrients in food like carbohydrates, proteins, and fats. And then secondary compounds are things that plants make that might make them more tasty or might also make them aversive. So just what you're saying now, it's like we get these with these secondary kinds of compounds from our processed foods that are misleading to us. They're not really giving us good information, those those compounds from processed foods. They're not giving us good information in terms of what we should be eating. It's kind of overwhelming our taste response and our flavor response, which is kind of a scary thought to me. Well, it is, and it's a really good point that you're, you're raising up. Let me take a minute and talk about the secondary compounds. I think they are so absolutely fascinating and absolutely essential for health. And basically, the human, uh, the foods that we humans have developed, the highly processed foods that are loaded with refined carbohydrates, um, as well as the fruits and vegetables, we've selected against these secondary compounds. Same for the animals, uh, the pasture plants that, that we raise animals on. Well, the role, you know, when I was a young researcher, these secondary compounds were just really coming into focus by ecologists. And uh, they were they were referred to as secondary compounds, the primary compounds, as you mentioned, energy, protein, vitamins, minerals, and so forth. We understood what roles they play in, in health and nutrition of plants and, and of animals. But the secondary compounds hardly anything was known about their roles. Well, in the last 50 years, we've come to realize they're not secondary at all. They're actually primarily, fundamentally important in the health of plants and how plants mediate interactions with every facet of the environment. When it comes to herbivores back in the day, we viewed them as feeding deterrents and people in agronomy viewed them as toxins. I don't view them that way at all anymore. What they do is they, they moderate. They moderate responses of animals, and that's what's, what we've removed from the human diet. So what do I mean by moderate? You know, energy is the nutrient that we need in the greatest amount day in, day out. And when animals are, are foraging in environments that have a diverse array of species, all with different secondary compounds in them, those compounds set a limit on how much of any one plant species an animal can eat. So to meet needs for energy, animals have to eat a small amount of a whole variety of different plant species. And so you have this moderating effect on how much of any one plant can be eaten. But at a cellular level, what's happening that I think is marvelous is cells are allowed are allowed to forage in those capillaries on this diverse array of different compounds. They can pick and choose what they need for their health. That's the beauty, in my mind, of this diverse array of secondary compounds and the roles they play with herbivores, but that they used to play with human beings as well. If you think now, here where I'm living uh, in Montana, in the fall, you can go for a, a hike in the woods late summer or fall and encounter at least 10 different species of berry, of different kinds of berries, from choke cherries and service berries to buffalo berries and so forth. And it's marvelous to, to pick those and eat them up as they're walking along. But what you notice is that the berries aren't just sweet. 
uh, not only aren't they just sweet, they have this real this pungence and astringence, and they've got a lot of kick to them. Not in a negative sense, but just and that's some secondary compounds. With if you think now for fruits and vegetables with humans, if they're not just plain bland to the point where you don't even want to eat them, oftentimes they'll be so sweet that that to me it gets to be too much. We've lost that kind of phytochemical kick that I think was historically and still is in all the native kinds of uh, fruits and berries that are on landscapes and in the the uh, ancestors to a lot of the uh, the vegetables that we eat nowadays. That's so true, and that's that. This is just the tip of the iceberg of all these really amazing things that you've talked about in your book, but. Sadly, we're going to have to leave it there, and we didn't even get a chance to talk about your personal journey, which I think is also a wonderful part of the book. But I will link to your book on our website so that interested listeners can find it and pursue more if they want to. Thank you so much for talking to us today, Fred. You bet, Beth. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. That was author and professor Fred Provenza talking about his recent book, Nourishment, What Animals Can Teach Us About Rediscovering Our Nutritional Wisdom, a fascinating venture into the mysterious realm of the innate knowledge of nutritional needs and how to satisfy them. That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is me, Beth Bennett. I also produced and engineered this week's show. Additional contributions from Joel Parker. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler and additional music from Weird Al Yankovic. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter. Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Beth Bennett.